Thanks, Andrew, and good morning, church. Powerful video, wasn't it? Um, yeah, very, very moved. I, didn't, I haven't seen that yet, and so that was uh, very stirring. So uh, my family, we're going we're gonna to participate. Uh, I don't know if we'll be running. Uh, I might power walk for her freedom. I don't know. We'll see. The kids might mope for her freedom, but uh, we're going to participate, and uh, hopefully, I, I like what Andrew said, let's... Uh, Let's make the biggest team. Let's, let's all do it. And uh, if you need somebody to carry you, we can do like Frodo and Sam. Somebody can just carry you uh, along three miles. We'll figure it out. Um, quick word as we begin. Um, as you may have been watching the news, COVID cases are ticking up. Um, we have some members that are more vulnerable. And so uh, the elders, we've been discussing this and attentive to it. Um, we're going to bring back the live stream starting next Sunday. But we're going to do it differently because we don't want to create just the easiest path for you to stay home if you don't need to. Um, so it'll be a registration uh, process. And what we'll do is just check your email this week. There'll be information about that. And if you are one of those that, uh, by conviction, you need, to, you need to stay home and view the live stream, you'll be given a private link to do that. It won't be blasted on Facebook or anything like that, but you'll get a private link to do it. Okay? So check your email this week for details. And as Andrew said, today we are starting a new series called Unity, and this is all about the unity of the church, particularly the local church. And the reason why we're doing this is because there's increasing polarization that we've all experienced, not only in the church or in the culture, but in the church as well. And this has an effect on us at the local level. So there's divisions in the broader Christian world too, and that trickles down, trickles down into local churches. How am I doing? We're good? Okay. <laughs> so that trickles down into local churches, and then there's new dividing lines that emerge all the time. So, I mean, at Christ the King, we're not immune to this. I mean, like, if you've been around here for a while, we've all felt the fact that the tensions and the polarization in our culture, it affects us here locally with the people that we know. And over the years, we've had to work through a lot of conflicts and disagreements, and that's normal. So two big reasons why we're doing this series. One is because the broader church is facing increased division over new issues. And second, the road ahead appears to be difficult. It seems like there's going to be a lot of things we're going to have to work through, especially as the world continues to change, we want to prepare for it. And that's really the biggest piece of the puzzle. And we'll, we'll end on this later on uh, this morning, but how are we going to engage in the world in the days to come, especially as the world is changing and is contributing to and increasing the polarization that we feel locally? How are we going to engage the world? And so I've been praying uh, for three or four months now. They've been planning this series. I've been praying that this series will live up to its name, that it will truly be unifying for us and clarifying. And whenever we're tested in the future... We can look back at some of the tools and things we discussed in this series, and we'll say that was a helpful time. That was a clarifying time for us as a church. So just here's a quick preview of the series. We're going to do building blocks of unity today. Next week, we'll talk about freedom of the conscience. The week after that, we're talking about unity in a fallen world. And the last week, the fruit of unity. That's where we're headed. So let's dig in. We're going to uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. And let me read the text to you, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let's listen to God's word. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is that unity? Well, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Truth is the bond of Christian unity. The foundational truth of all Christian unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul here mentions the Trinity. He says that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are united in the work of redemption. So there's one God and Father. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. There's one Holy Spirit that is within us. And then Paul further urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because there is one faith, one hope, one baptism, one body. And so we treat each other accordingly. We treat each other according to the unity that he has bought for us. And so we do that by walking, by, by living and acting with humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So that means maintaining unity will require us to put up with each other, to be gracious with each other and to respect each other. Now, at this point, we need to make a distinction whenever we talk about the church, because the Bible uses the church in two senses. There's the universal church, and then there's the local church. So first, we'll talk about the universal church. The universal church is the church as God sees it. So that's the, the true church, the true people of God that are saved, that, that uh, is comprised of all the people of God for all time. And it's the invisible church, because we can't see as God sees, right? So Revelation 7, verse 9, gives us this vantage point of heaven looking on the universal church, and it says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's the universal church, the global church, the church of all people of all times, all the people that have been called out of the world into fellowship with God, united together as the universal church, and it's people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, every ethnicity. It is global. It is, it is meant to be comprised of all different kinds of people. So the universal church, as it is in heaven, this is the picture of it, and that's the way it will be for all eternity. Now... The local church is the church as we see it, right? I mean, that's the, the, it's a representation. It's a sample of the universal church. So it's a visible church. It's a, it's a local gathering of Christians. So the visible, the local church, Christ the King Church, Cincinnati, Ohio, the local visible church, it's an earthly representation and an imperfect representation of the invisible universal church. And when I say imperfect, I mean that there, there are some that will be members of the church that may not actually be truly Christians. So it's, there will be people included in our local body that may or may not be part of the universal church. 
And, but it's, so it's a mixed group, but as best we can, we try to do, do what we can to, to make this church a representation, a representative sample of the universal church. So we have a graphic. Uh, that, do we have a graphic that depicts this? There we go. Um, so what you see here is you've got the world, right? This is not the scale. So uh, You've got the world, which is all the people that God has created. And then out of the world, you have a subset of people that are Christians. That's the universal church. And then within that universal church, you have smaller groupings of people that are local churches. Now, you might also have groupings that would be over on the left side that would be, uh, you know, like somebody that could be like a 501c3 that is actually a church organization but isn't actually a true church. So there are worldly versions of this. But that's kind of a basic idea. You have the world, and then a subset of the world is the universal church, and then you have local representations of the universal church, local churches. Now, unity and division in the church, whenever uh, the Bible talks about this, it's almost always talking about local churches. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a unity that we all experienced that was described earlier here in the text we read. But whenever Paul is talking about unity and, and division within a church, he's talking about local churches and our need to work out our differences together. So um, the, an example of this is the Corinthian church. They were a hot mess. You know, the, the church in Corinth was divided and they had celebrity culture and there were just all kinds of problems in the Corinthian church. A lot of division and conflicts. And Paul called them to work for unity. And so um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, gives us a, a great idea of what Paul is talking about with unity. So let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, local church in Corinth, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the unifying force of the church, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So unity can be attained, but it has to be worked for, right? I mean, unity is something that we strive after. It's not automatic. We have to patiently and graciously work through differences and disagreements together. And this is local interpersonal work. This is things that you do with people that you know, that you're in community with, not strangers on the internet. So the unity that we're called to is with people that we know, that will sit across from you, that are in a city group with you, that are here in the same church together. It's not necessarily referring to people that we don't have access to, that we disagree with, that live in some other place. So the unity we're talking about, for the most part in the series, is local church focused. And we do this by talking to each other. We work through our differences until we find agreement, or at least we choose to maintain our unity despite our disagreements. But either way, it takes that work of conversation. Now, there's a growing trend that, that I've observed, that you may have seen too, that you, know, you might have Christians that will disagree on some issue in a church, but instead of working through it, they just leave. And they're like, well, we disagree, so I, I guess i got to take off. Uh, Pastor Michael doesn't agree with me on that, so I, so I guess i just got to leave. I can't be here anymore. And there's actually a process. You know, there's a way to work through these things. There's a way to, to uh, Paul says, you know, I urge you to work this together, that you will be united, that you will not have divisions, that you agree and work to the same mind and the same judgment. I mean, that takes effort and conversation. But whenever these people leave and you ask them why, they don't actually tell you the reason. They'll give you some 
some uh, alternate reason that sounds more acceptable. They don't say, well, I disagree about this or that. They'll say, well, you know, we're just too far to drive or something like that. And we'll, we'll hear that sometimes. Now, that's not Ephesians 4.3 unity, right? I mean, that's, that's a, it's, a, it's a presentation of unity that's not really what Paul and, the, and, and the, the Bible talks about as far as doing the work of unity. In hospitals, you've got triage departments, right, that help you sort out the urgent from the non-urgent medical issues. Well, we've been using a similar tool in our church, you know, pretty much from the beginning. Uh, it's a, we call it like a theological triage. And we use this to help us sort out what are the urgent versus the non-urgent issues. So there's some issues that it's like, well, if you don't agree that Jesus is the, the son of God, well, then we don't have a whole lot of unity because you're denying something essential. But there are other issues that are not as urgent. They're not as important, but we need some way to, to sort these out. And so we've, we've put together a tool of theological triage that can help us sort these things out. So even though truth is the bond of unity, some truths are more urgent and central to our faith than others. There are three categories that I want to share with you. Gospel convictions, church commitments, and matters of conscience. That's on your handout. First, gospel convictions. Gospel convictions are the essential, unchanging, eternal truths of the gospel. And they are binding on all Christians, all true Christians. And that would include things like the doctrine of the Trinity, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and, and his need to repent of his sins. It would also include the full divinity and humanity of Christ, the fact that Jesus died in our place, that he rose bodily from the dead, and that he is coming back. It also includes things like salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Gospel convictions. Now, in the next category, we have church commitments. Local churches unite around the essential gospel doctrines that we just went through, and they build upon them with additional doctrines, a ministry philosophy, mission priorities, and things like that. So, for example, you have churches, every church will have a theological tradition, a denominational affiliation, a form of church government, a, a view of the sacraments, things that make local churches unique in their context. And as such, every church will have its own house rules, the way that it operates. So you have a certain way of doing the music in a church, a preaching in the church, a certain approach to counseling, uh, the way people dress, and an overall culture and feel of the church. The third is matters of conscience. Members of the same church should be able to charitably disagree on matters of conscience while still maintaining unity and close fellowship with each other. In other words, we shouldn't divide over these issues. So these issues can include things like different types of media. So TV and movies, social media, the use of alcohol or tobacco, different dietary choices, you know, vegan, uh, vegetarian, keto, whatever, the Daniel diet, you know, all the different kind of ways that, that we eat. Um, the use of medication to treat mental illness. 
non-abortive contraception using the Enneagram. I would have hit a nerve on that one, huh? <laughs> a bunch of ones, you self-righteous people. <laughs> um, schooling options for kids. You private school, you public school, you homeschool. Those are matters of conscience. Mothers working outside the home. End-of-life issues. Now, on all of these, individual Christians are free to obey his or her conscience as directed by Scripture and wisdom and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we don't mean. Freedom of conscience does not mean that all the issues on the table are equally good, right? Some choices can be unwise. Some of the choices can be sinful. But freedom of conscience does mean that we shouldn't break fellowship over these things. We can't bind each other's consciences over things that are our personal convictions. And the thing is, some of these issues are really complicated, and there's a lot of factors that go in to why an individual will make a particular choice, and a different individual will make a different choice because his or her particulars are different, circumstances are different, and so they need to make a different decision. Both of them are free to do so, but there's, an all, there's not a one-size-fits-all um, approach to every single issue that we might encounter. Some are better, some are not as good, some are bad, but in all of these issues of conscience, we need to have the freedom to be able to operate within, these, within the parameters of the first two sets that I've already described to you. So these, these issues can have good arguments on both sides, and none of us sees everything perfectly, right? We all need grace. I mean, we're all growing from one degree of glory to the next. We're all, we're all growing in sanctification. We're becoming uh, more like Christ, hopefully over time. And we all have blind spots. And we have different matters of, of growth where the Lord might press you on one issue that you need to repent of and grow in. And the Lord might press somebody else on a different issue of growth they need to repent and, and grow on. So there, it's, it's, our sanctification is not all going to be exactly the same. So we all need grace and truth, we need a lot of time, we need patience, we need space to learn and grow and to, and to work out in our individual lives what it means for us to follow Jesus faithfully. And to do so without being overly burdened by somebody else's convictions on matters of conscience. Now, I want to do a whole sermon on this next week, but that's a primer of where we'll be. This framework I'm laying out to you, this uh, gospel convictions, church commitments, matters of conscience, we've been using a different you know, versions of this framework since the beginning of our church, and it's been very helpful. Um, I think it's been really clarifying for us, but the thing is there are new issues that produce new challenges all the time, and those issues are accelerating in our modern cultural climate, right? I mean, we, we've all experienced this, the, the barrage of new issues that we're having to grapple with and figure out. And because of that, we need to continually go back and reapply the framework that we've been using from the beginning to these new issues as they come up. And so in the remaining time, what I want to do is I want to take you through five building blocks of unity and how we apply them at Christ the King Church, okay? Five building blocks of unity. Here's the first one. The foundation of all Christian unity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We've already hit this once. Let's hit it again, all right? This includes a number of important beliefs. So we're in the gospel convictions category. Romans 3.23 says this, all have sinned. And that's a, that means everybody, everybody who's ever lived. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that means everybody is a sinner. Everybody deserves the wrath of God. Now that's a form of unity, right? We're all united in our sin and our rebellion and the fact that we're, we're, we're opposed to God the way we're born. So that's a form of unity, but it's a worldly unity. Now, a prototypical example of this is the Tower of Babel, where they all had one language. They were all united in this collective project of rebellion against God, Genesis 11. But here's the next one. God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, he provided forgiveness and salvation and eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the world, the people that are in rebellion against him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish in his wrath, but have eternal life. So the third one, Jesus Christ. So this is the third point under this first point, if you're following. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Now here is something that Christians are united in, but is a point of division from the world, right? Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. So we say that it is, we're not saved through Islam or through Hinduism or through Buddhism. Jesus Christ is the only way. You would say that's exclusive. Yes, it is. That's what Christians believe. That's what the gospel demands. That's, that's what we think. And so, 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God, right? One God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ. There's one God, there's one mediator, which is why it says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here's, here's what unites all Christians. We all believe this. Every, every true Christian would believe this. There is only one way to be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're not saved by being good people. You're not saved by being a good person. You're, God doesn't accept you because you're nice or you keep the rules or you do good things or you align with the right causes. Doing the Aruna Project, the Aruna Run, that's a great cause. It's a great thing to be a part of. And God is not impressed with it as far as it doesn't, it doesn't make us more, more savable or more lovable. We do it as Christians out of a, out of a, des a desire to do good works and to show love for people. But it doesn't have any merit before God, right? So the way to be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God is to admit our sinfulness and to believe in the gospel and to commit our lives to Christ. And when we do this, God keeps his word. He forgives us. He cleanses us of our sin. He, he gives us eternal life and he unites us to him and we're brought out of the world and we're united to the universal church and we'll be with him forever and eternity in heaven. This is the gospel. This is the unchanging eternal truth 
that was handed down to us by Jesus Christ himself and the apostles. It is the ancient, historic Christian faith that all Christians have always believed. It's why we value ancient creeds. It's why we recite the Apostles' Creed and the other, of the other ancient creeds because it unites us with not just a local group, but it says we are part of something that has been going on for a couple of thousand years and we're united with these same people that have been confessing these exact words for over 1,500, 1,800 years since the, some of these creeds were first formulated. But we do it here at the local level. So how do we apply this at Christ the King? Well, it's very simple. We would say we're a gospel-centered church. It means of all the things that are important and of all the things that are going on, it's like this is the core of who we are and what we do. The gospel is our focal point. It's the foundation of all we've done this morning so far. It's, it is the focal point of our preaching, our liturgy, our worship, our communion, and all the other ministries. It's all about the gospel, and it exalts Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the first building block, the foundation. The foundation of all Christian unity is the gospel. Number two, Christ the King Church, local church, builds upon that foundational gospel unity by living out a particular theological tradition in our local context. So how do we apply that at Christ the King? Well, we have things that don't make us necessarily, these aren't things that make us Christians, but they do kind of organize the way that we operate as a church. We are elder-led church. Other churches have different kind of church government. We're elder-led church. We do expository preaching. We practice believer's baptism versus infant baptism. We practice communion every week. We uh, are part of a reformed theological tradition. We ascribe to the historic doctrines of sexuality, marriage, and the family. And beyond these things, being in an urban context, that will affect and inform the culture of our church and our philosophy of ministry and our style. Now, those things I've just gone through are not what we would put in the first category. We wouldn't say, well, if you don't have elder-led, then you're not, you're not a Christian. Well, we wouldn't say that. There are lots of congregational churches and different kinds of models of church. But yeah, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're over there doing their thing in their local church. And we're over here doing our local thing in our local church. We love each other. We can join together. We can do things. But there are house rules that govern the way we operate. That's number two. Here's the third building block. A commitment to holiness is a catalyst for unity. A commitment to holiness is a catalyst for unity. What we mean is that, that, that unity is the environment that produces mature Christians. Now, worldliness in a church does the opposite. Worldliness in a church is divisive and it stunts growth in a church. So if you remember from that, from that earlier uh, graphic that we put up on the screen. You've got the world and you've got the universal church set apart from the world and you have local churches. Now let's say the priorities and the values of the world starts being imported into a local church. Now you have a lack of clarity. You have some confusion. You have worldly priorities being put up against godly priorities and that confuses people and that divides people. Because you have the true Christians that want to unite, that want to walk with Christ faithfully. You have them, and they're set against other people who may have other things that they desire. So at the very least, there has to be an acknowledged commitment of everybody. It's like, hey, like, we want to be godly. It's like we want to walk with God. We want to be holy in our lives. 
Worldliness does the opposite. So Paul addressed this in 2 Corinthians because the divisions in the Corinthian church came from a spirit of worldliness and spiritual immaturity in the church. So 2 Corinthians 6.14, catch this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So what Paul is saying is you can't be united to Jesus and the world at the same time. You know, in another text, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. So you can't be united to Jesus and the world at the same time. So our union with Christ and our unity as a church is predicated upon being called out of the world and set apart for Christ. In the gospel convictions category that we read earlier, we said like the necessity of repentance of sin. It's like that's, that's an essential an essential part of the gospel. You have to say, like, I'm a sinner, I need to repent of that and, and walk with God. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 4, talking about Christians in the world. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. So the Corinthian church was a mess because they were worldly. They were not doing the work of being called out and separated from the world, but they were syncretized. They were trying to mix light and darkness. They are trying to mix oil and water, Gryffindor and Slytherin. They were trying to hold things together that just don't go together. Sorry, that was the Andrew's joke. I just borrowed it. <laughs> no, it was Jason's joke. Jason, sorry. Uh, Got to give, gotta give sight my source. So, Jason Hudson, thank you very much. Harry Potter joke. So, how do we apply this at Christ the King Church? Well, it's, it, it's built into our mission statement. So if you know our mission statement, we exist to help people know, love, and obey. That's the one. We help people to know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. The obey part is our commitment to promote holiness as a church, promote obedience. It's a force for unity and maturity. And so we're always working to build a discipleship culture that emphasizes our need to repent of sin, that, that indwelling sin is part of our constitution as human beings. Being a Christian doesn't immediately sanctify you completely. It forgives you. Positionally, yes, you are viewed by God as righteous in Christ, but still, there's, we still got our junk to work out, right? So we're always having to work through that, those issues and repent of our sin and grow. And, and this is a lifeline for us. This is a good thing because the gospel is not only the means of salvation, the gospel is also the power of our sanctification. It helps to, helps to purify us and give us the, the faith and the hope and the, and the strength of walking with God. All right, number four. Here's the fourth building block. Suffering is the cost of unity. Suffering is the cost of unity. So we've got to remember something. The Christian religion is not one of rose petals and rainbows. It's a faith of nails and crosses. That means there's a call to suffering that's part of our faith. Listen to what Paul said. This is 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I've always been struck by just the the breadth of that statement. He says, hey, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you'll be persecuted while 
evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, that's an unpleasant promise, but that is, that is biblical. That's what Paul says here in Scripture. And so one of the things that we can expect from what Paul says here about imposters and evil people is that non-Christians and false Christians will make life difficult for true Christians. True Christians who have a sincere desire to obey Jesus. And so as the world becomes more and more secularized, more and more, more and more, uh, you know, moving away from a more historic Christian founding, the more it becomes secularized and, and even hostile to the Christian faith, the price of obedience will go up. It's like spiritual inflation because we're trying to obey God in a context that is less and less accommodating to it. So in an environment like that, obedient Christians are always going to stand out. We're always going to stand out, sometimes in painful ways. Sometimes we'll even suffer. So Christians, we should just have it as part of our framework of life, that we should be prepared to pay a price for obedience. But also knowing that there is a hope of a greater reward in heaven for doing so. So Jesus gave us this comfort, Matthew 5, 11. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What do you do when that happens? What do you do when somebody slanders you, calls you a bigot, says that you're hateful, just because you, you believe what the Bible says? Well, Jesus says, hey, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, here's the fifth building block. Fifth building block. Division, even division in a church. Division is often a prerequisite to unity. Division is often a prerequisite to unity. So sometimes unity is forged in the fires of painful conflicts. And let me read to you. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. So we're back in Corinth, and they were fighting over the Lord's Supper, fighting over the way they do communion. And so Paul throws in this comment. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The division needed to happen as a necessary step towards unity. So God can cause, or, or excuse me, God can use division in a church to bring clarity. The controversy brings an issue to light. It brings the, 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 the key players to light. And what are the motives and what are the, what are the key factors? A, a controversy in a church can bring all these things to light and force a church to deal with the issue that for a time was divisive, but the result is clarifying. I mean, we all want unity, but unity does, doesn't just happen. Or if, or if unity is simply a, a feeling of, it's like, well, we're all getting along. It's like, that's just not realistic. <laughs> a lot of times, unity comes on the other side of a division that clarified and surfaced the issues that needed to be dealt with. So unity has to be won and fought for and defended. 
And whenever a conflict first happens, let's say an issue arises whenever it first happens, it's not always obvious who's fighting for unity and who's being divisive. All we know is there's an argument, there's a problem, there's a division, and then what does everybody else do? We often just like, stop being divisive, both of you, quit it. But sometimes maybe it's like, well, somebody's got a legitimate issue here that needs to be addressed among us. And in so doing, that brings that surfaces the issues and they can be addressed and worked with, but it takes patience and grace and humility and all those things that we talked about in Ephesians 4 at the beginning. Working through conflict can sort out the important issues and expose hidden agendas. Have you all listened to the Mars Hill, Rise and Fall Mars Hill podcast? You may listen to that. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. Um, one of the things that stood out to me is that there was a, basically there was a dictatorship that was happening in this church. Um, so the, if you don't know, the podcast is a story of Mars Hill Church, which is this big mega church that imploded. Um, uh, it's like a meteoric rise and then a catastrophic fall pretty, pretty within a short period of time. But they had this, this culture that wasn't healthy because you had a dictatorship. It was a one-man rule. Now, in the midst of this, you had, you had guys within the church, like elders, that were fighting for the unity of the church by helping to uh, develop the leadership, and they're trying to prevent this one-man dictatorship in the church. And so whenever that was happening, then the guys who were fighting for that unity were publicly accused of being divisive. And the whole church turned on them, and these guys were kind of cast out. But it turns out, and this took time, right? So like what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, the, those that are genuine may be recognized. It turns out that those two guys were in the right. And all the elders that had, you know, voted to cast them out, those elders, you know, not all, maybe not all of them, but many of them later said, hey, we got that one wrong, and we hurt you, and we're sorry for that. So the guys that initially were accused of, of being divisive were actually the ones fighting for unity. The point is this. Whenever an issue becomes divisive in a church, we can't just run away from it. And we can't just say, don't be divisive, or just accuse people that are, that are introducing the problem of being divisive when a lot of times they're surfacing an issue that needs to be addressed. And the thing is, is that in our cultural climate that is changing so rapidly, there's always going to be more and more issues that are coming up because the world around us is, is it's like the, the ground is shifting underneath our feet. So it's possible that in an issue at a time like that that feels like, oh, no, there's division. Oh, no, that's a problem. Mayday, mayday, mayday. We hate this. I think if, if we can have the eyes to see it and faith to see it, we can recognize that God could be at work to bring clarity to issues that we need to address and the individuals involved. And so that can be a good thing. I'm not saying every time, but it can be a good thing. So those are the five building blocks of unity. Now, I've got a... a let me just share a couple of concluding thoughts, and, and then we'll wrap up. But this, this, this sermon is a bit of an overview because these themes will surface, and I want to flesh them out a little bit more over the coming weeks. But here's a couple of concluding thoughts that, um, that I want to wrap up with. Thank you, brother. <laughs> have, have a good one. <laughs> Why don't you all, the rest of you all say goodbye when you leave? Uh, <laughs> You just get up and walk out. I'm like, you didn't say goodbye. Come on. I thought we were friends. <laughs> All right. Some concluding thoughts. Um, 
The world has changed rapidly and dramatically over the last several years. And I want to I explain that. Uh, I'll give you some examples of that in three weeks, or two weeks from today, third sermon. Now, from conversations that I've had with different people over the last couple, three months, um, there's two that I think kind of rise to the top that I want us to address in this series, and really is the, a lot of the impetus behind this series. And I've talked to a lot of people, and I've, I've really been thinking about this a lot. So here's the, here's the two questions that I've risen to the top, and I hope that this series will help answer and bring clarity to. The first question is, how can we effectively engage in a rapidly changing world with the gospel without compromising our convictions? It's the cultural engagement question. How do we engage in this world that is constantly changing rapidly? And the ground beneath our feet is changing. How can we engage in a world like that without compromising our convictions? That's number one. Number two, how can members of Christ the King Church work through our disagreement on matters of conscience with love and grace? So that's where it hits, the, hits, the, uh, hits us personally. How do we work through our disagreements when there's matters of conscience. So I hope this series will bring clarity to these and related questions because I think what, what will be helpful for all of us is to have clarity um, as we go along. Vagueness is our enemy. And vagueness oftentimes is what we, what we put forward to obscure deeper issues. We find a way to kind of put a smiley sticker on it, but but not really clearly address what's going on. So I hope this series will, will bring clarity for us, even though it can be uncomfortable. Let me give you an example of this. You may have heard of this. This is a few weeks ago. There was a situation at Crossroads. Crossroads, a big church in Cincinnati. And it highlights what we're talking about, about, about needing clarity in a church to avoid division. So if you don't know Crossroads, uh, I looked it up, Wikipedia says it's the fourth largest church in the country. 34,000 people, so it's, it's well beyond megachurch. They're in gigachurch territory, right? I mean, they're just like ginormous church. And, uh, I mean, they're known for world-class marketing. I mean, you don't get to be the fourth largest church in America and hold that many diverse people together without some very carefully crafted messaging. So they've got experts that they know how to engage the world. They know how to, they know how to speak to the world, and a lot of people come to Christ through crossroads. So it's a... I mean, they, they're a different church. We have differences about the way they do things, but I respect what they do. Now, um, a few weeks ago, they brought in a guest speaker, and the guest speaker uh, preached this message about transgenderism, particularly as it relates to um, kids and surgical treatments and so forth. Now, that was a, that was a surprising move. I wouldn't have expected, expected that, but, but I, whenever, I, whenever they did it, I was... I was surprised and impressed. So I, they've removed the message from their website because of the controversy, but I got a copy of it and I listened to it. And when I heard it, I was, I was floored because it was great. I, I thought this message was, was very clear. It was bold and direct and it confronted idols in our culture. It confronted issues of our day, but in a way that wasn't mean-spirited at all. Um, and so I thought... I thought it was a very well done, kind, clear, loving, and direct. But, you know, you may have heard on the news that there was a controversy that erupted afterwards. And that controversy, they had um, protesters that would camp out around the church and, um, you know, have their signs and so forth. And the protesters were from um, 
an LGBTQ plus uh, group. Now, made it on the local news, Pastor Brian Tome, he had to make a statement. So he did like a public statement that was written, and then um, he also did a, a verbal statement that, you know, he spoke at the church that Sunday. Now, here's the thing. If this happened five years ago, it w- there would have been no, really no controversy. Ten years ago, absolutely no controversy. But in 2021, it was a huge controversy because the guy saying things that pretty much everybody would have agreed with 10 years ago now uh, has caused major division in churches all across America, and it landed at Crossroads. Now, I, personally, I don't know Brian Tome, but if I did, I would go give him a hug <laughs> because I can just imagine how difficult that was to, to lead a church through, a church of 34,000 people. I mean, can you imagine his inbox, you know, the complaints that he would get? <laughs> It had to be awful. So here's a quote from Cincinnati.com. So there's an article, Cincinnati.com, and they said this. The problem, so, and I'm reading a quote from one of the protesters, all right? The protester said, the problem with Crossroads is their stance on LGBTQIA plus issues and people is very unclear publicly. So the protester, the pro-LGBTQ person was saying, tell us where you stand. And because we don't know where you stand on stuff, then that, that's created an environment where, where we hear a message that we weren't expecting. And so the lack of clarity, it just highlights the need for, to be clarifying on issues, um, even as the world's views on these things change. So the point that, I'll, that I'm making now, that I'll, you know, I'll unpack this more in a couple of weeks, the point I'm making now is that like, there's, there's different ideas about what people think we should be doing to engage the world. And the thing is, like, all of these views come from people that I really believe have a desire, sincere desire to honor Christ and to reach people, to love people with the gospel, to do all the good things that Christians can affirm. And yet, because the world's view on some of these issues is changing and shifting, then we can't just maintain the status quo like we would have eight or nine years ago and expect there to not be uh, ramifications for that. So in my opinion, issues like this is where the unity of the church will be most forcefully tested in the future. So our church was founded on a missional idea, right? Of like, I've said before, it's like I saw myself when I moved here as a missionary to Cincinnati to plant a church in this city. I want to engage this city with the truth of the gospel. But because the world's views have changed on particularly matters of sex, race, and politics, those issues have have. have affected us and the way we interact with each other as a church because a lot of times we just don't know we're, we're our way through it. And there needs to be like, hey, we got to work through this. we got to talk. we got to have conversations with each other. We've got to weigh priorities. We need to find a way forward. We need to, that's just work of unity we need to do. I'm saying we can't just ignore it because it won't go away. I mean, it's, this is beating down our door and it's going, to keep, it's going to keep affecting us. So it's important for us to work through it. So you have, you know, some people, they want to engage the world. And so they think the best way to do that is to not engage controversial issues from the pulpit. That's one view. Other people say, well, if we're not clear where we stand from the pulpit, which is the most public of our communication uh, uh, channels, then we're not engaging the world. We're more likely to compromise with it. And then you have other people that think, well, cultural issues on the whole are just a distraction. Just preach the gospel because that's what really matters. And I would say all three of those groups of people have probably biblical convictions, and they can argue and, and articulate it. And I'm saying, like, that's, 
those are, those are things that affect us as a church. It affects the way we perceive our church. Nobody at Christ the King Church wants to disengage. Nobody wants us to compromise. And nobody wants us to stop preaching the gospel. And a big test of our unity going forward is how to maintain these priorities in a rapidly changing world. And if you're curious about how to navigate these concerns, stick around, because over the next three weeks, that's what we'll be talking about. All right, it's getting late. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that is the foundation of our unity with the church of all time. We thank you uh, for founding this church on the rock of Christ and, and that you've, you've united us as a local body. And we pray, God, that you will uh, promote unity in our midst and that you will help us to wade through these murky waters of, of cultural issues and difficulty that are just new for us, new for everybody. And so I pray that uh, over the next, um, over the four weeks of this series that this will be a unifying force that will live up to its name of Unity Series. And so, Father, we, we pray as we come to the table, the place where we eat and drink and we feast at a, at a fellowship of the Spirit, we pray, God, that you will remind us of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will feed us and nourish us and you will unite us. Give us love in our hearts for one another. We thank you. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.